Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. God, we thank you for this evening and for this this very difficult, challenging, hard-hitting text in Hosea. And this text it's it's hard to find things that are that are happy in this text that are encouraging in this text. This text, Lord, tonight is just very direct, and it ends on a very depressing note. And and God, we're just we're looking for your heart in the midst of all this, and we are ever so thankful, Lord, that that we uh, we belong to Jesus and that He has paid our price and that we're His disciples, and so we have this. We've been reconciled to you. And that we, you have done the heavy lifting and brought us back to you. And, and Lord, uh, reading this text tonight is just, just going to be hard. And it's going to be full of judgment and full of, of just some hard things, Lord. And But that was the position that the Northern Kingdom was in. And you were about to levy judgment upon them. And so, God, we just thank you again for this opportunity to get to know you as you study your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to mute everybody because I'm mean. All right, there we go. Okay, so we are in Hosea 8 and 9 tonight. And on the top of the page, you can kind of see where we're at there. Kind of the second from the bottom, God's people are not devoted to him. So God's people are unfaithful. The book starts that way. God's people do not know him. And we're not surprised at this first category. God's people are unfaithful because remember he told Hosea, the prophet, to literally go marry a woman who is guaranteed going to be unfaithful to you. And it was a perfect analogy for Israel, who was unfaithful to God. So God's people are, are, are unfaithful. God's people do not know him. God's people are not devoted to him. And then, and as we close uh, our time in Hosea in weeks from now, God's people are deceitful. So we start with shock. Chapter eight, here we go. And we're in, uh, this is 1 to 14. So we'll just start with, we have 1 to 3, 4 to 6, 7 to 10, 11 to 14. Let's just go with 1 to 3 real quick. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of our Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me, they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. Rejection. Rebellion. Empty. Set the trumpet to your lips. That's war speak. And a vulture or an eagle. It's, it's the same idea in, in the Old Testament. They're both ver- birds of prey. There's war. There's war that's coming for Israel. They transgressed my covenant, rebelled against my law. You see, there's rejection here. There's rebellion. Israel is going to be shocked by this opening section because God sees what they're up to. God sees what they've been doing, and God knows their hearts. They've rejected God. They've rebelled against God. And now, well, and they cry out to God, of course. So this pictures them kind of being carted away into exile. Not quite yet, but almost there. And at that point in their darkest hour, they're calling out this great foxhole prayer kind of to God, like, oh God, we're Israel. 
we know you. We're calling to you, God. And God's like, yeah, 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 whatever. You spurned the good. This enemy is going to pursue you. It's like God's not listening to that anymore. God's been calling them to repent through the prophet Hosea for how many chapters? And now at the very end, when they're halfway being drug out of the city, now they're calling out. No, God sees their heart. God knows what's going on. God responds to a truly repentant person. The Bible is clear about that. If someone is truly repentant, it doesn't matter, Peter, how many times they come before you, seven times or 70 times. It's like if they're truly, truly convicted and humble and repentant, you take that at face value, but God's seeing the face value right here. There's rejection and there's rebellion. And this is empty words. So four to six, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. So like, like a big calf kind of God thing they made. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? Woo-hoo-hoo! God, with the, the touch of words there, how long will they be incapable of innocence? Dang. For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. This thing you made in Samaria, this calf, this isn't God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. And we've talked about this before. This is their syncretism worship. They made this calf. And to be fair to them, they probably were saying, this is Yahweh. This is our God. We're going to make a big, a big idol to represent our God. And, you know, they kind of did that when, they, when Moses was up on the mountain too long. And uh, the people came to Aaron with all that gold they plundered from Egypt. And they said, hey, we got all this gold. Make us something. And so Aaron did. We got this idea of a calf here, this great horned. And, you know, that was one of the symbols for Baal as well. And so Baal was kind of like this big bowl of a god. And so it didn't take too long for people to take their, their worship and say, well, I'm really, really worshiping God. But you know what? Let's just mix a little bit of Baal in there, too. And it's like oil and water. One's going to go to the top of the, the, the flask. The other one's going to go to the bottom. It's like, you can't do that. Yeah, that's a great point, Meg. That's a good reason God commanded you shouldn't make any images. Because once you make an image, you're not going to want to worship that image. You're going to want to take care of that image. You're going you're gonna to want to set up a statue in a field and mow the lawn around it. Then you want to go to that image and say, you know, you know, statue, I'm just saying, I did mow the grass around you. I wiped off the pigeon poop from it. You know, I'm just saying, you know, I scratched your back here. You didn't ask me to, I know, but I did do this. And so it brings in this, this subtle but natural kind of manipulation when you start having idols and images. And so God's like, we're not playing that game. And so, yeah, we, we've got this here. Um, someone else here come on in so yeah we've got this independent and they're self-determining um, what's independent isn't independence a good thing yes that's one of the ways you can tell somebody has matured as a person are they independent are they able to function on their own that is a sign of maturity 
that is a sign that you've been raised and you, 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 you're able to go off into the world. But with, with regards to your faith, I put to you, that is a sign of immaturity. When it comes to God, be dependent. I mean, hello, Jesus pointed to a child as the model for faith. Children are by definition innocent and dependent. Children need. The moment you say, I'm independent of God, that's not good. Here they're independent. Do they just get to appoint kings? No. God appoints their kings, and God sends a prophet, does the anointing, all that kind of stuff, and God's calling it out here. They made kings, but not through me. This wasn't a, wow, they've grown up. Look at them leaving the nest. Wow, look at them go. Boy, I did a good job raising them. No, this is, they're doing things without me. They're trying to exist as if I don't matter. They set up princes, but I, I knew it not. And it's for our perspective, not God's, because there's nothing that God doesn't know. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Ooh, mic drop. They made idols that, that, to lead them to destruction. Dang. Yeah. And so he's, ta he's talking about their calf. So they're independent and they're self-determining. And, and that's not good. If, that's, if that is part of your spirit, knock it off. If you're ever independent from God, if you have this self-determining factor about you or attitude about you, I'm just going to be, you would know that if you're kind of like the captain of your own ship, kind of the master of your own domain, you kind of throw God lip service here and there. Maybe you kind of come up with a big old prayer and ask God to kind of sign the, the, the bottom line, or you say all these things, but you quickly say in Jesus name, amen, at the very end. And it's like, you, okay, you're really all about you not about God, you're probably, if that's you, not too far away from ancient Israel here. Because they just barely gave lip service to God. They had other, they had other deities to worship. They couldn't give it all to God because what about their crops? What about the rain? All their neighbors had, had their bales. And we can't leave them out. Who do we think we are that we're not going to worship or they worship? Are we better than them? I mean, I don't know what kind of excuses people say. You mean to tell me you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Who do you think you are? Well, there's a quick answer to that. It's not about who I think I am. I'm not the one that matters, see. It's Jesus. 7 to 10. For they sow the wind, they shall reap the whirlwind. Ooh, man, God is just dropping bombs. They sow the wind, they'll reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. And even if it were to yield, strangers are going to devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim, that's poetic for the northern uh, tribes, Ephraim has hired lovers. Here they go. They're looking for security. They're looking for purpose. They're looking for protection. Ephraim is like uh, Gomer going after the other lovers. Remember the other lovers gave her all those things and the money and the rings and all these things. And, and, and Hosea had to buy her back. That's where we're at here. Israel is going up to Assyria. Israel is, is, is wanting to reach out to Syria. Israel is wanting to reach down to Egypt. Israel is going after all these other lovers. 
to try to take care of their business. She's hired lovers. And what, what, she mean, what he means by that is they're paying taxation. They're being extorted. They're paying like homage to all these other rulers to, to not die, basically. And um, though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and the princess are soon, shall soon writhe because of all the tribute. Yeah. You see, they sowed sin. They reaped destruction. That's true about life. Great Old Testament scripture, your sin will find you out. I know that's my story, is it yours? If you sow sin, you will reap destruction. Yeah, like protection money to the mafia. Yeah, they're, they're, they're having all these alliances. We've talked about that in previous chapters. All these alliances, and they got to pay tribute to all these. Well, here they're calling them lovers. I thought Israel was married to God. Yahweh is their husband. What are they talking about lovers for? Don't they trust Yahweh? That's the point. They don't. And that's the issue here. So we have rejection, a rebellion, a just emptiness, an independent, self-determining spirit. They sowed sin. They reaped destruction. 11 to 14. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Wow. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write to him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and they eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. Ooh, like a reverse exodus. That was a mic drop. God is tossing haymakers here. Man! For Israel has forgotten his maker and has built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities. It shall devour her strongholds. Wow. Attitudes of replacement. All these things they're putting in the way. All these things they're doing. They're making all these altars for this and altars for that. These altars are leading them astray. They're bringing these meat offerings to God, and they're just eating it. This isn't about God. This is about them. Everything they do is about them. Their attitude just sucks. God's even like, I've given you my law, but I could write it a million times. You're not going to get it. You just regard my law as a strange thing. What are they going to do if God doesn't accept their sacrifices? That's kind of all they have. If they offer a sacrifice on the altar, I mean, think of the Day of Atonement, for example. What if all of a sudden the Day of Atonement doesn't matter anymore? If God just says, you know what? I've had it with your fake worship. I'm not coming through on that day. How screwed would they be? I mean, think about it. This is God's like, no. No, I'm not, I'm not playing that game. It's something I'm, I'm not doing. I had a question come through, and I, I, 
It says, is Haggai written about the same time from Hosea? Hosea? And I had a chart here that had all my prophets. I think I misplaced it. It's killing me. My, my delightful children take my papers and they draw on them. So, and I'm also, but I'm, I'm invading their toy room. So uh, I believe Haggai was a, a post-exilic work like Joel and others. Although some argue Joel was not post-exilic. But yeah, I, I would put Haggai later on with Nahum, with Habakkuk, uh, where we're dealing with uh, post-exile. Usually what I would do, this is a pre-exile work. Um, but yeah, that, that's usually how I would answer that question. Uh, it looks like others are. Um, okay, so we have attitudes of replacement. So when God is not enough, Let that sink in for just one second. God is clearly not enough for these people. They just do their own thing. They need something more. When God is not enough, you're never satisfied. When God is not enough, what else? You go looking other places When God is not enough, you really don't trust him. Because if you trusted him, you would be fine waiting for him, waiting on him. Yeah. Um, when God is not enough, check that attitude in your own heart. Because they're rejecting God. They're rebelling against God. Their words to God are empty. They're independent. They don't really care what God says. They determine everything on their own. They live life as if they're the ones that matter. They sow sin. They reap destruction. Yeah, you create your own God. You set yourself up as a God. Yeah, and they literally are creating deities. They're saying, you know, God, he just, it's great to know. It's like God is that cosmic, you know, gym membership card. It's great, you know, back when we were going to the gym all the time, and now it's a little weird, but I guess people still go. But it's like, you got that card in your wallet or purse. Like, I could go if I wanted to, but maybe I will, maybe I won't. It's like, I got this relationship with God, or maybe I'm on the rolls of a church, or maybe I have some pastors that know me, or maybe I've got people in a small group, or I come to a class. And it's like, that kind of covers up a lot of things, because it's like, I've got that. So that frees me up to now do this, 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 and this. And this attitude that says God is not enough, because if God were enough, you would stop that seeking. You would find your purpose in obeying him and serving him, and that would be enough for you. That would give you all the meaning of life you ever needed. That would give you your entire purpose, your entire mission. That would be it. But if you're listening to these words right now, either live on the Zoom or in podcast land, you're saying, but yeah, well, no, you add a yeah, but to that. We'll go back to the yeah, but. If you add a yeah, but to that sentence, what the, the things that I'm telling to you, then God is not enough. That's your temptation. You want to say, but God, what about this? And what about that? Hold on there, buckaroo. That was ancient Israel too. They had their own geopolitical mess they were wandering through. They knew to their own mind that if they did not ally with these people, they were going to die. Because all these other nations and all these other armies were coming at them. Or almost coming at them. They had the prime real estate. And so they were going to be crispy critters. And this very God of theirs, what was he going to do? All he's been doing was yelling at them telling them to behave, telling them to repent. What's he going to do? 
And so they go elsewhere. When the self sets the standards, when the self sets the standards, that means that you are now the arbiter of truth and that you can have a truth and I can have a truth and nobody can really comment on your truth because they haven't lived your story. And our experiences, they don't determine the truth. Now, wait a minute, Joel, don't you know what I've gone through? I, some of you, yes, I do know what you've gone through. Others of you, no. But let me just tell you this. Our experiences don't determine the truth. You can't say, well, I don't know what, what I, I really can't criticize this person because I haven't walked a mile in their shoes. You're never the standard of truth anyway. God's word is. Our experiences don't determine the truth. They may illustrate the truth. So for example, I've lived half of my life with MS. I've learned to trust God. That does not determine the truth. It illustrates that truth. It doesn't mean that my story determines the truth. I just pray that it illustrates it. I pray your stories illustrate God's truth as well. Use your story for God's glory. May your scars encourage others who have wounds. Yes, that's a great meaning of life, to trust God so much that he's able to use your story for his glory. But you are never the standard bearer of truth. You are never the one that sets the truth by yourself. And that's Israel. They're just like, yeah, we're going to make our own kings. We're going to make our own worship. We're just going to make our own gods and goddesses, and we'll do our own thing. And you know what, God, if, you, if you're even listening, maybe you'll come, come, come play with us or whatnot. But you know what? To heck with you. We got our own thing going on here, God. Our experiences never determine the truth. So when someone says to you, oh, well, you haven't walked a mile in their shoes, you might say, well, you're, you're right. I haven't. But our experiences never determine the truth. They may illustrate indeed, but they don't determine it. Because if they do determine the truth, then everything goes and turns into this soppy, wet kind of biscuit on the table kind of relativism that doesn't really mean anything. And that's just kind of this floppy, flaky thing that just kind of crumbles and splats. It doesn't really matter. Everything would just be relativistic and your truth is different than that truth. And there is no your truth. There is the truth. There is God's word and there is everything else. And so when you are the self that sets the standards, Israel, or now, you get into that relativistic, pluralistic trap. Because all of a sudden, if you're the one who sets the truth, then what happens to the next person? They get to set the truth too. And then we're now in this big pot of soup. Everything's mixing together and we'll just kind of take a ladle and try to eat it. That's it. That's the shock. Yeah. It, truth exists before any of our experiences. If our experiences determine the truth, that would in turn mean, mean that we are God. Yeah. And that's not the case at all. Um, talking about this calf, he just says, you know what? A craftsman made that calf. It is not God. This is God saying, God is the unique one who knows who God is and who God is not. And God saying, this thing you're worshiping over there, that is not God. Done. Finito. And that can be broken apart. God cannot be. So that's shock. Uh, we continue with captivity. We're in chapter nine now of Hosea. We've got the uh, 
a record scratch moment. We got great ironic reversals, joy to become mourning and judgment. You guys know what a record scratch is? You'll see that in, I'm not talking about like, you know, the beastie boys who are like two turntables and a microphone, which you, which you, which yeah, that's a record scratch. But I'm talking about when like in a really cheesy movie, when the, uh, the bad guy enters a saloon and all of a sudden you hear and the music all stops. Okay. Or the, it's, it's, it's pantomiming someone dragging the record needle off the record and it's going and the music stops and that's a record scratch. It's like all of a sudden you're going, oh, wow, what's going to happen now? And so you see that. And so maybe there's going to be some kind of an aside and then the, 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 the protagonist is going to look at the camera and say something, or maybe, you know, the bad guy is going to, you know, come into the saloon or whatnot, the record scratch moment. Here it is. Verse one, record scratch moment, chapter nine, rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You've loved the prostitutes' wages on all the threshing floors. Boom. They're having a party in this verse. They're rejoicing. I don't know what festival it is in this chapter, but here they are. They're having a party. They're having a barbecue. They're having one of the God's festivals. And they had taken God's festivals. And, and by the way, let's read between the lines here. What did the Baal worship do? Um, they used the, the, the presses and the threshing floors. I mean, think about the book of Ruth. Think about the tension when Ruth meets Boaz right in the middle of the story on the threshing floor. And Boaz is like, okay, he sees what's going on there. And he, she, you know, she uncovers his feet and, and he kind of gets it at that point. Or he goes, oh, I see. You could have gone after the younger guys, but you're going after me. All right, but tell you what, we're going we're gonna to stop everything right now, and I'm going to give you some food, and you're going to leave. Don't let anybody see you leave. Why, Boaz? Why? Because people did things on the threshing floor when they had bad motives. And Boaz wanted to nip that in the bud. In Baal worship, you had your prostitution on the threshing floor. Remember, Baal was the agriculture god. Baal was the lightning god, sending rain, sending heavenly semen, as it were, to fertilize the crops. And that's why he was worshipped. It was tied into fertility. And so you have fertility of crops. You might as well have fertility of men and women, too. So they worshipped him with sex on the threshing floor. So that's why we have prostitution here. In Israel, you have gone to that threshing floor, and you have been the whore. Huh. Here it is. Here it is. So stop your party. God sees what the party is. That's the record scratch. You, 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 what are you doing on the threshing floors? You're going to say you're going to have this party for God and rejoice with God? You're not rejoicing for God. You've turned that into you. You've turned that into your time to worship you and to worship your lusts, and to worship your pleasures, and to worship all these things. Record scratch. Great ironic reversal, two to four. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them. The new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings or wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. Ooh. Oh. Oh, no. That's actually a really scary verse. 
why would you do any sacrifices at all? How many times in the Old Testament did God call for that to be a pleasing aroma wafting up? Here's God saying, all your worship, it's not going to please me. It's actually ticking them off. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Um, reversals here. Thre all, all your threshing floor, all your grain, your vi wine vat, all your wine. You're not going to get to enjoy that. You're going to have all these crops, and you're not going to get to enjoy them. You're going to have all the fruit of the vine and not get to enjoy it. The new wine is going to fail. Nothing's going to work. You shall, not, you shall not remain in the land of the Lord. You're going to go to Egypt, and you're going to eat unclean food in Assyria. Historically speaking, they're going to die very soon. They're going to be just taken away. The ones who are survived are going to be carted off. And the Assyrians like to cart off with hooks through the nose. Just take them. These people are the first crispy critters. They're going to be gone very soon. And God's calling a shot right here. You're having all these things, all your parties, all your feasts and festivals and all these things. You're not going to eat those crops. Are you kidding me? You're here, you're celebrating, you're worshiping Baal, worshiping Yahweh at the same time, doing all these things. No. Yeah, all that work for nothing. You can't work for God's favor. It's right. That's right, Meg. Um, wow. Um, they shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices shall not please him. It should be like the mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. There's not going to be any worship anymore. And even if you did worship, God doesn't like it. That's describing a very depressed and lonely situation. But it's kind of like the Pharisees with the unpardonable sin. I don't think they care. I don't think they care. I mean, what's our section at the top of the page here? God's people are not devoted to him. If they were devoted to him, all these words would be beating the tar out of their hearts. But no. But no. Great ironic reversals. Their joys become mourning, verses 5 and 6. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold... They are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Now, this is not Tennessee. Memphis was, they're basically Egypt's big burying ground. I want you to picture, it had this reputation. Picture like, I don't know, the, um, the mummy movies were like little the souls of the dead and try to come back to life and all that kind of stuff. The murky black goo of the dead souls. Memphis had that underworld quality about it. That's where everybody got buried. And that was like the, the underworld of Egypt was in Memphis. That was kind of like, you're going to be buried there. This murky, nasty kind of pagan. Yeah. That's kind of the image it had. And yeah, Memphis is going to bury them. Nettles or weeds or thorns shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. Their joy is to become mourning. Um, they're, they're joyous now, but they're going to mourn. And this is, yeah, this is all terrible stuff. Judgment, seven to nine. The days of punishment have come. 
the days of recompense have come. Recompense, as in you are finally going to get yours. So many of us look at our politics and they look at our culture and we look at our enemies in this world and go, well, one day God's going to give them what for. And yes, indeed, that may indeed be the case. I don't know. But Israel's getting their what for right here. They're getting their recompense. You got to remember Israel had the day of the Lord prophecies that one day God was going to restore on that final day that Israel was going to be placed in its position that it should be in. And the enemies of Israel were going to, you know, that, that by the time in the new Testament that had taken over. And so the zealots that were on Jesus team are like, yeah, you're the Messiah. So when's it going to come? We want our great reversal. They're not getting a great reversal. Are they? No. For you see, God is not their God anymore. He's their enemy. And that's horrifying. Horrifying. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. He's just saying, hey, all your prophets, that they're going to try to hear my words, uh uh-uh, done. The prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with my God. Ooh, we got Hosea talking here. This is my God. Ah, Hosea shows up a couple times here. He, he was talking about what God said, and now he himself is talking. Here we go. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fouler snare is on all his ways, and hatred in the house of God. They have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the days of Gebeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Yeah, it's like Hosea is not doing what a Moses or an Abraham used to do. Remember them? They used to plead for God's people. Blot me out. Let me take their place. Oh God, please don't, don't, don't kill them all. Or if there be how many left in Sodom that were good, will you save the city? This is Hosea saying, go God, go. Kick their butt. They're evil. And I'm on team God, and here we go. I mean, dang, Hosea. He himself is bringing it. Oh. Yeah, Mick texted in. The, the repetition of Egypt highlights how grave the situation was, a pre-deliverance condition as if not saved, not even God's people. Yeah, Hosea it was no dummy. Hosea is not messing around. So we go from a state of shock to now a state of captivity. And that captivity is going to be, um, it's not going to be good at all, of course. The first thing here, no, I don't think you do. I thought of a line from my cousin Vinny. Can I remember that? Do you remember that part about that movie where it's the very beginning of the court case and Vinny is just trying to figure out what's going on. He's not that good. And Judge Holler doesn't really know how to deal with Vinny. And so he's trying to get this arraignment. Okay. And so he's trying to get Vinny to say if his clients are guilty or not guilty. So I kind of have the, the quote here. I mean, uh, the judge says, the next words out of your mouth better be guilty or not guilty. I don't want to hear commentary, argument, or opinion. If I hear anything other than guilty or not guilty, you will be in contempt. I don't even want to hear you clear your throat. Now, how do your clients plead? Vinny says, I think I get the point. The judge famously said, no, I don't think you do. You're now in contempt. Would you like to go for two accounts? Not guilty. Thank you. 
I love that line. That's the line right here. These people think everything's good. They think God's not going to come through. God's not going to follow through. God's not going to do this. God's not going to do that. No, I don't think you do understand. Because if you did understand, you would knock it off. Israel, judgment is coming. So keep partying. Just keep partying. Have that last helping of grain because you're not going to have any soon. When God shall not be pleased. That's terrifying. Each one of us looks at that gospel passage and says, well done, a good and faithful servant. Welcome to your reward. See, we live for that. We live that when we enter eternity, God is pleased. We want God to be pleased with us and for him to say, well done. Now imagine if that's now off the table. Imagine if God will not be pleased. Yeah, we want the add a boy. That's right, Meg. We want that or add a girl. We want that. Now imagine if that's off the table and it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter what you're bringing to God. No, he's not going to be pleased. That is terrifyingly lonely. God may as well be deist at that point, just winding the watch, putting it in the drawer and walking away. Because this is like God is not going to pay attention. God's not going to care. God's not going to be happy. God is not pleased with you no matter what you do. What a horrible, horrifying place Israel is in. Now, the temptation is to take this to us and go, oh, that's me. Oh, that might be me. No, don't do that. Take this at face value. This is as far gone as Israel was. So if ever you're saying, well, gosh, God, that was a little, little, little mean. I mean, destroy everybody, cart them away. I mean, how, at what length did you go, God, to get your people to the promised land and get them all tribes and get them all, you know, the whole Joseph story? I mean, my, my, the Exodus story? My goodness, God, look at all this. You did all this just to wipe them out. Yes. God takes this stuff seriously. When God shall not be pleased, we have no hope. There's a reason why when I read that live, I paused and I groaned. Because we never, ever, ever want to hear that. Reading this text is causing me on the inside to mourn. To turn away from my own selfishness. I pray the same for you. Because we're reading this at face value, reading what God is telling to, to ancient Israel. But the Holy Spirit is still using it on your heart right now. Pay attention. History, chapter 9, verses 10 to 17. This is where it kind of gets even better. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. What? God, you're getting all romantic here. Well, it's appropriate. Remember. God, this is a God is, is Israel's husband, as it were. Okay, this is not an inappropriate thing. Like grapes in the world. So imagine you're in the desert and you're parched for thirst and you find some really juicy grapes. All right, all right. Fill my mouth with your, your liquid. Okay, I'll take that. Wow, what a great image there. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. 
like the first fruit on the fig tree in his first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor. They consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Yuck. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they do bring up children, I will bereave them until none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Here's Hosea. Hosea, plead for them. Be the prophet. Come on, Hosea. This is your turn. Give them, O Lord. What will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Ouch. How can this be, God? How can this be? They started so well with God. What's the Baal pour? Numbers chapter 25. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to, began to in, indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meat and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Yeah, that's the same language Jesus once would use. Take my yoke upon you. They yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all these leaders of these people, kill them, expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of those people who have yoked themselves to be able to be or. I once taught this many years ago. I was teaching numbers. Great book of the Bible. Numbers, if, if you think numbers is boring, just take the numbers, think of, just think of one word, land. Okay, it's about the promised land. And I had two young women that were, one of, the, one of them had just started coming. They were both early 20s. They were friends. One of them had her husband right there. The other one that was by herself. They were just two young women in class. And we read, we read this, it was, I just remember it like it was yesterday. We read this passage from Numbers 25. It just happens to be that class. And they were all thinking, well, what's the big deal about this? And I said, ladies, I'm going to ask you. I just singled out the two young ladies in the class. They looked like they were in their early 20s, maybe. I just said, okay, let's say you just got married to the husband of your dreams. It's a great wedding ceremony. He provided everything for you. You can't possibly imagine the wedding ceremony that happened to be. But here you are, and you're on your honeymoon. And you're having a great time. This is the man of your dreams. You are his precious wife. 
But now imagine, ladies, and I flipped the genders here because usually we'd be talking about God and Israel, the wife. But I flipped it around for their sake because I wanted their reaction. I, I said, now imagine, imagine you're on your honeymoon. And the first woman that walks by on your honeymoon, maybe she's in the lobby of the hotel. Maybe she's on the beach while you're out there sunbathing. Whatever it is, she walks by. And let's say your husband gets off the towel sitting with you and runs after this woman and takes her into the hotel and spends the rest of the evening with her and buys her a bunch of lavish gifts. And you are on your honeymoon. What would you say? The scowl was on those women's faces, and I taught that lesson. Have that on your mind. That's Bela Peor. The very first opportunity Israel had to possibly cheat on God, they did so. And they did it with sex, and they did it with meat. Moabite women and barbecue. The very first opportunity to cheat on God, and they did. So when God brings up Baal of Peor, think about the scowl you would have on your face. That they had on their faces. They almost couldn't finish the class. They were like, oh, seriously? Yes. That's Baal of Peor. So we're reading these punishments, and we're reading what Hosea is cheering it on. Like, yeah, God, get, you know, this is what's on his mind. This is a people that should have been faithful to God, the very God who delivered them miraculously from slavery, who married them on Mount Sinai with a great covenant marriage and is now leading them through the wilderness into their promised land. And the first opportunity, they prostitute themselves to God number two and all that comes with it. And here in Hosea's day, hundreds of years later, they're still doing that stinking thing with the meat and with the, the sex and the bail. That dang bail, still bail. You wonder why God is always upset at this bail worship. It all starts with Baal of Peor. Numbers 25. So much so in Psalm 106, they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. They ate sacrifices offered to lifeless gods. They aroused the Lord's anger by their wicked deeds, and a plague broke out among them. So if you're looking at this chapter and going, gosh, you're a little harsh, God. Baal of Peor. That's your honeymoon. Every time Bala Peor is mentioned, I expect you to throw up in your mouth just a little bit. They were still doing Bala Peor all these generations later. How dare you? How dare we? Never forget. That's our story, too. We are each addicted to our own selves in our own way. We are all Gomer. Ten to seventeen again here, Gilgal. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. 
There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. Ouch. And again, you got to think about it. This isn't God, you know, doing abortion or anything like that. This is God allowing, you know, Assyria to come through and wipe them out. And God would do the same thing with Judah and Babylon. And they'd be carted away by the Babylonians. Here it is. My God, here's Hosea again. Hosea is going to have his line. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. If you don't think this Bible is important to pay attention to, then let Hosea's line kick your butt. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Dang. Gilgal. Was there something happened to Gilgal? No. Gilgal actually had a great reputation. If you think about it. They crossed the Jericho River. No, excuse me, the Jordan River at Jericho. They crossed the Jordan River. What do they do? They go take 12 stones from the middle of the river and they pile them up as an altar. Where? At Gilgal. So everybody who passed by, what is this? Here's what that is. Tell the future generations the faithfulness of God. That's a Gilgal. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah. It's in the Joshua story. What else happened to Gilgal? 1 Samuel 11, 14 and 15. Then Samuel said to the people, come, excuse me, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. Well, that sounds kind of good. Why in the world does that matter? Check out what God says in the text. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. What? God's looking back. God's looking back at Israel's history. And Baal of Peor obviously comes to mind. You don't cheat on your honeymoon like that and, and stay with that person constantly cheating on your spouse the rest of your dang marriage. God's not going to forget that Baal of Peor honeymoon, okay? But here, all the kings that led the people astray, they all got their start with that dang Saul at Gilgal. God knows his history, doesn't he? He freaking wrote it. Here it is. Wow. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I'll drive them out of my house. Whose deeds? All these kings, almost all the kings, even the good king like David had horrible, wicked moments. And he was a man after God's own heart, looking at all these evil kings. They got their start in Gilgal. Amos chapter 5, or 4, verse 5. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Be'er Sheba. 
for Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. What were those cities? They had temples there, or not temples, they had places of worship, shrines to worship Yahweh there. Bethel was a big one. Be'er Shabbat, Gilgal, those were places for God worship. And by that time in Amos's day, Amos was a dude from Judah. God called to go up to speak to Israel before the end. Right around this time of Hosea, and they said, hey, these great places of worship, you're worshiping other gods there. This, these are temples that are for paganism now, not for our God, Yahweh. That's the taste Gilgal had left in the mouth. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. No hope, no divine approval, and there is no prophet to intercede. This is possibly the most depressing end to any chapter of the Bible. Because on its own, there is no hope. This is you, who you think you're good with God, O Pharisee. But in actuality, you're a self-serving hypocrite. Big text that Gilgal demonstrates how a good can be turned into an evil thing. So two horrible mic drops at the end here, Baal of Peor and Gilgal. Baal of Peor, you might want to go, how dare you? Gilgal, you might say, oh, what might have been? No hope, no divine approval, and there's no prophet to intercede. The one prophet we have here, Hosea, is saying, eh, you, you get what's coming to you. You've rejected God for far too long. How in the world does this fit into the narrative of Hosea? We'll have to see in the coming weeks. This has been Big Rev for Masterclass Theology. Thank you for letting me share. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.